Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, boy, the Battle of Winterfell was absolutely amazing. The NFL Draft is all wrapped up, and we are here to recap this episode. And with me this week, to occupy the space under your jump shot with impunity, it's David Newman. I take offense to that. Oh, man. Did you watch any of the uh, the Rockets-Warriors game? I have not, no. Oh, yeah. Well, there was basically the, the story of the game were all the missed calls because the Warriors were getting up under the the shot of the Houston Rockets. Oh, man. I will just say that, like, playing basketball, I hate that guy. Like, I hate that guy so much. Well, the thing was, I didn't think that the, the moves were egregious, really. I thought that it's difficult to not get under someone's shot when they jump up into their shot and then create a V with their legs because they're kicking them into you as a defender. I mean, sure. Which is problematic. Fair, sounds like a fair point. Yeah, whatever. I just, uh, James Harden irritates me in a lot of very interesting <laughs> ways. And so, it was a good game. I'm glad they won uh, on to game two but let's talk a little bit about the 2019 nfl draft because it is officially in the books we are gonna refer for those of you who who tuning in for the game of thrones talk uh, that's gonna be (laughs) at the end of the episode we'll definitely put time codes in there so you can skip ahead or skip it up to you especially if you're trying to avoid spoilers but the 2019 nfl draft is in the books david how do you feel about the draft overall Overall, pretty good, I think. Uh, you know, I, I did too. The the top two picks you feel really good about. I mean, obviously, we talked about Bosa at length, um, but getting possibly the best player in the draft at a position of importance and also a position of need for the team, like really kind of no-brainer. Uh, if you're going to stay at number two, that was clearly the pick. And then, uh, you know, I think we both also like Debo Samuel and think that he has the ability to be a, a big part of this offense and really be uh, somebody that's a vital part of this passing game and, and can really help them out. And, you know, we talked about spending resources that can improve your pass offense, you know, is is never really a bad use of resource, especially if you're getting uh, what we think is a quality player, right? It's somebody that fits what they like in that position. So those are the two uh, that I think are, are great. I think they found some value, you know, late in the draft, but Overall, if you can hit on those early picks, I mean, that's going to be ultimately what defines this draft when we look back on it. So I think they have a really good chance to, you know, for those two picks to look pretty good. Obviously, we won't know how the draft is going to turn out for a few years, but initial impressions are really, in my opinion, based on the evaluation of the player and the valuation of the pick overall. And I think in both instances, the Niners did some really, really good stuff, especially at the top of the draft. I'm considering adding uh, Debo Samuel scores on a slant to the drinking game. Um I mean, either that or that's a good one. I, like I think it. we're going to have to replace the select time chug your beer rule. Uh, we'll yeah. get to, we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, I think that there's definitely some value at the top. And, and then I think I want to take a minute to talk about Jalen Hurd a bit, a bit because I think after our Jalen Hurd scouting report, uh, the the sentiment I think that we were giving was generally negative. And and um, even though we said I think all of the things that are true about his evaluation, he's going to win in intermediate areas of the field. He's got some physical tools that are enticing. Um, and I went back and looked at a lot of his tape, and I think that I was probably or sounded more negative than I actually am on the pick. But I've actually warmed to him over watching after watching him more and more and more, and I can absolutely see the logic in in drafting someone like Jalen Hurd. And to your point. If you're throwing resources at something, I'd rather throw it at something that is going to be that's not a linebacker running back, right? Especially that high. So I think I've warmed to it quite a bit more um, and I can absolutely see why the team wanted to get someone like Jalen Hurd in the third round. I haven't really. Uh, I still kind of feel largely the the same way I think is, is when we did before. I think the one thing in 
kind of the corner and the pros strongly for that is the thing that we mentioned, right? Is, is spending resources on the passing game. I think, uh, if that is something that all pick that ultimately works out, you know, that's obviously a good thing. Anything we can do to make the pass offense better is good. Um, I still largely feel like he's not a player that does any one thing really all that well. I think, uh, versatility as we've talked about in the past is only good, you know, being capable of doing multiple things is different than being good at multiple things. And I think, uh, just because in theory he can line up at receiver and you can motion him in the backfield and you can give him a, a handoff from there, or he might be able to, to add back some weight on and get back to his running back weight and, you know, play some tight end or something like that. Like just because he's possibly capable of doing those things doesn't mean that he's, better at a rece- as a receiver than an actual receiver that's been doing that or better than a running back that could actually get that carry, right? So, like, it, it's just, um, I, I think there's a, a big, big unknown. I think, you know, the fact that he's a, a pretty solid athlete at that size and has, you know, I think some decent movement skills. I don't think he's a bad athlete um, is, is, like, intriguing, but that that's not a pick that you make with a 67th overall selection, right? That's a pick that you make on day three. Um, and I, so I, did, I think it's more the spot is just still a, a concern, but uh, again, we'll, we'll see how that looks, you know, in a couple of years. Yeah. For me, it's really just the consistency thing. Cause he's shown the ability to do things in spurts that you're like, okay, that's, that's pretty awesome. I really, really like that. That's great. But what really good players do is they consistently do those great things over and over and over again. So we look at why Nick Bosa was at the top of the draft, someone like Quinn and Williams. They consistently are able to beat their defenders. They're consistently able to win. And I think Jalen Hurd was able to win in some cases, but a lot of the receptions that he got, and I think this is probably why the, the initial scouting report was a bit more sour, at least from my perspective, is when you saw a lot of his catches, and he had almost 1,000 yards, but... A lot of them were things that he didn't produce on his own. They were just open in the middle of the field because you had an RPO or something like that. Um, but in the instances in which he did create and did win, I thought that was pretty exciting. So really, for me, it, it's, a consistency, it's a consistency thing. If he can become more consistent in the way that he runs his routes and the way that he uses his athleticism, he could be a pretty nice addition. Um, so I, don't, uh, I think that's, that's why I've warmed to it overall. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Um, but then you get to... The, the middle rounds, and this is where you start with the 49ers having a few issues in a couple of places where you had some head-scratching moves. So, of course, in the fourth round, the Niners selected Mitch Wisnowski, punter from Utah. Uh, and then in the fifth round, they picked Dre Greenlaw, linebacker from Arkansas. So, which one of those two picks did you like the least, David? <laughs> I give you a guess. Um, yeah, uh, I'm yeah. going to guess. I'm, man, I'm going to guess the punter. I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say you didn't like that punter pick. No, no, not, not especially. I mean, uh, look, it, it's there, there's no reason to kind of go, uh, and waste 15 minutes ranting about a punter. Uh, it's just Why not, not David? something that at this stage of my life, I'm prepared to do. Um, I think, I don't know. There's a lot of, I, I think it, you know, maybe you can kind of like help, uh, point what your biggest questions are. Like, I, I think just it's, it's tough to justify taking, uh, a punter with the 110th overall selection. That is, that is very, very difficult to wrap my mind around. I think for me, that was more the issue. It was the place in the draft, not necessarily drafting a punter. I know that you are infinitely more averse to drafting a punter than I am. And I, I totally get that. Makes sense, right? But I do think that when you look at the way there were really two punters on the board that people were were kind of lusting after, right? It was Jake Bailey from Stanford uh, and this dude, uh, Mitch the Wish. 
And you think to yourself, okay, we, we have two very, very good punters on the board. And if we, the Niners had just traded back into the fifth round, they were worried the, that the Patriots were going to draft a punter, which they did eventually in the fifth round. But they were worried that the, the Patriots were going to draft a punter. And so with your fifth round pick, though, you're already ahead of the Patriots. So I felt it would have been a more shrewd use of resources to pick a player that can really help your team on offense, on defense, and coverage in a passing game or something like that with that fourth round pick, especially because it was such a high fourth round pick. I mean, at that point, you're looking at maybe value that slips from the third round into the fourth on the way that your board's coming down. And, and you think to yourself, I do have a fifth round pick ahead of the Patriots. Let's say that someone does end up drafting Wisnowski. Cool. I can still get Jake Bailey. And, and I think that my, me personally, I'd still, if I didn't get either of them, I'm okay with that. But I think that play was a bit better allocation of resources based on the way your roster is constructed than drafting that punter in the fourth round that high. Yeah, I, I mean, I think depending on what angle you want to come from there, there's a number of different issues to potentially take here, right? I think one thing that is important to call out, and this kind of is is something that you touched on a little bit there, which is uh, there is a difference between when, when kind of like trying to evaluate things from the outside, there is a difference in what is and what should be, right? I think we like to live in a world of what should be. This is what we think is kind of the optimal way, you know, based on everything that we've been doing over these years. Uh, this is kind of how we think is the best approach to put a winning football team together, right? This is just kind of lessons that we've learned. But it's also important to 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 understand and, and realize that that's, of course, not the way every NFL team thinks and, and maybe not even the way most NFL teams think. And and, uh, and so when you're looking at punters, right, I would say the what should be is that punters and specialists in general should never be drafted. It's just um, a specialist, even if you get a very, very good one, can flat out not have the impact on your win-loss record uh, as a positional player on offense or defense. It, it just, the impact is not there to justify it. But that's not how NFL teams have generally approached it. I mean, we do see most punters in the NFL are undrafted, but if you're going to draft them, typically the way that we see this is sixth round is kind of the sweet spot is where you see a lot of the drafted punters go. And then you have kind of like a handful of guys that are maybe your top punter prospects that that sneak up into the fifth round, right? I think uh, Dixon last year, Michael yeah. Dixon. I mean, Dixon's um, the example that everyone is going to trot out when they're talking about an elite all-pro punter. Maybe the best year. punter prospect that we ever. will ever see, yeah. right? Like, uh, I- at least in, in kind of like the modern NFL, like just uh, fantastic, right? Um, and he only went in the fifth round. Um, so I think there's there's those two things where, where like, okay, so wh- where you're at right now in kind of the NFL norm is we're generally going to look in the sixth rounder if we got a guy. Maybe we're going to sneak up into the late fifth or something like that if, if we feel super strongly about him. And, and you're taking a guy now at the 110th overall spot, which is a, a prime position. There are still very good football players on the board that can help your team, help George your George Kittle depth. was a fifth-round pick. Uh, I mean, yeah. and, and I think that's one of the, 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 the dichotomy between what is and what should be, I think, is a really interesting one because I think that going forward on fourth down is the prime example of something that started out as what should be and is very quickly moving into what is. And now you see coaches getting lambasted for not being aggressive enough. And now everyone's like, well, look, if you go for it on fourth down more often, you're more likely going to get, you know, more points over the course of a season, which mathematically is correct. 
but it's taken some time to get there. Um, and, and I have a few, well, I don't know how it's going to end up, but I think specialists and drafting specialists is kind of in that mold for, for you as well, right? Yeah, and it's just, and, and the other thing, I think the final thing I guess that I'll, I'll say is like, the drafted punters aren't even markedly better than the undrafted ones, right? Like uh, saying it, it goes back to like the general thing about the draft is that we we don't know a whole lot, right, about these things. And so uh, when it comes to punters, the NFL team's evaluations on punters aren't any better than they are at other positions, right? It's not like they're they're so good at identifying this specific skill that like, okay, if they're going to draft them, those guys end up being really good. Like sometimes it works out, right? Uh, you look at the best punter in the NFL over the past three years has been Thomas Morstead. He was a fifth-round pick. The next three guys in terms of three-year grade uh, for us at PFF, um, which is a punting grading system, by the way, that was helped uh, develop by a former NFL punter in Chris Cluey. He's the one that kind of helped us form that system. Um, the next three guys on the list are undrafted. And then you look at the other fifth rounders, right? You're just as likely to get a guy like Bradley Pinion, who Pinion is a below round, average yeah. punter. Um, you know, so it's all over the board still. So you're not even by that by wasting that pick. You're not even guaranteed to get good production at that. And then there's the question of like, even if you do, what is that good production at punting really worth? Yeah. And and I think too, if you're worried about your punter, guess what? Upgrade your offense and don't worry about punting. Just go for it on fourth down. Sure. I'm ready to move the needle all the way to that, that run. Just never punt. Already Um, way too much time than I wanted to spend on this punter, but (laughs) I I love it. I love that you did. I'm not not nearly as averse to drafting a punter as you are. I, I think drafting a punter, if you think it's your guy's fine, like in the, you know, fifth round at the earliest, but even then I think the way the board was falling down, the Niners could have applied their resources a little bit better, but then you get to their actual, uh, well, actually one more thing really quickly, because this is going to be a retort that we hear often, but Bill Belichick traded up for a, a, right. a, a, a puncher in the fifth round. And I think that even I, who am okay with drafting specialists and, and punters in the fifth round, think that is a false analogy easiest, because when you look at the context of the situations in which both teams are operating, um, it's not the same. We'll start with the fact that, well, the Patriots have a Super Bowl roster and the sure. 49ers do not. We can start there is point number one. Uh, right. I think, um, you know, there's a number, you, you have to look at the surrounding context, right? It's not as simple as, uh, you know, this team is good and they drafted a punter and this team is bad and they drafted a punter, but that doesn't make it a bad decision because the good team did it too, right? It's, um, you know, again, it, the, the 49ers selection, uh, of a punter was with the 110th overall pick. Uh, and this was what their fourth pick, uh, in this entire draft, right? So a player again, that they should be looking for an actual contributor, um, for the Patriots, the, their punter was their ninth pick. They had already done such a good job in the draft at accumulating picks in that second, third, fourth round range and had taken so many players already that, yeah, by the time you're getting to draft your ninth and tenth guys, you just don't have that many roster spots. And you're already working with a much better roster to begin with. You're, you're working with a, again, Super Bowl roster, and the 49ers are working with a roster that just earned the second overall pick. And, and so those situations aren't really comparable. But then you get to the, the 49ers' other pick in the, those kind of mid to late rounds, and it was their fifth-round pick, Dre Greenlaw, linebacker from Arkansas. The 49ers feel like they got some value here. They had him higher on their list. He did run a 4.73 at the Combine, but and this is an interesting factoid, they had GPS data from Arkansas that indicated that he was faster than his 4.7 time. Do you think that the—I don't ever think the 40 is going to be rendered useless because the, the NFL has created a cottage industry for combine stuff and scoring and um, hand time versus laser time. Um, but do you think that 
we will ever just kind of eschew the combine 40 and just be like, cool, we can put a GPS chip in this dude's shoulder pads and see how fast he actually is on the field. I mean, it would be a while, right? I think the the benefit of having the 40-yard dash is that we have all of this historical data to go back and we can compare, right? All of these combine drills have been the same uh, forever. And, and so it's very easy. We have a large data set to work with. And so, you know, teams like having that ability to uh compare those directly and, and be able to get better results because they have a wider data set to work from. Right now, the the issue with, uh, you know, the GPS data is that we just don't have a lot of it, and especially at the college level, right? Like, so at the NFL level in general, they just got Not everyone stuff, has it, right? Yeah. They just got to the point where every team gets every team's data. And, and so... At the college level, they're you know way further behind than that. Arkansas Not every has team a chip. has it. Texas has a chip. Yeah, uh, but you know, yeah, South- you're going to get some of your bigger schools, yeah. right? Bigger programs that have a lot of money that can do it. But the problem is Abilene like none Christian of it's standardized. It. Yeah. yeah, and and it's just not the same stuff that everybody's using. And so it's it's far more difficult to make comparisons. And then again, this stuff hasn't been around that long. So you know, if a guy is running at a certain speed now, like cool, that sounds good, but we don't know, like, what are these other picks that went high? Where were they running? We don't know, right? We'd have nothing to compare it to right now. So I think if if that is something that happens, uh, it is much further down the road when that data has had a time to really build itself up. Yeah, when you look at his, when you look at his tape, which I didn't watch a whole hell of a lot of it, but the the tape that I did see, he does seem faster than, you know, 4.7, but he certainly doesn't seem fast. Uh, Overall, his athleticism numbers were not great. Um, so I think if the team is looking for the trait that they're getting with this player, it's probably his tackling ability. He w- was a pretty sure tackler in college. Um, I think he ranked 12th in tackling efficiency, but that's about the only thing, at least initially, that you can say like, okay, that's great. Um, and then when you look at you know kind of their opportunity cost with this pick, they had, if you're going to pick a linebacker here, cool, that's great. But Blake Cashman was on the board when they selected Greenlaw, and Blake Cashman, I think, was an overall better prospect on, in a lot of different ways when you compare him to the prospect that was, that was Drake Greenlaw. Right. I think, um, yeah, I don't have a ton to say here. I, again, I think, you know, of course you would have rather they go for coverage or something like that, but it's the fifth round. It doesn't really, if you want to add some linebacker depth, whatever, especially with, as we'll get into a little bit later, kind of where they feel things are at with their secondary right now. Um, sure. Go, go get your linebacker. As we've talked about, uh, you know, it kind of each draft season, one of the things that we like teams to look for in these later round picks is, find somebody that that is has like one really really good thing that they can lean on which is like that may be athleticism right maybe they're just a, a very unfinished prospect they haven't shown a lot on the field for whatever reason but they're a fantastic athlete okay take a chance on that guy see if you can coach him up or you take the guy that has just despite kind of poor athleticism has been able to produce at a really super good. high level right it's just he's been able to make plays despite what he's working against physically Sure. Let's see if he can if he can continue to do that at the next level. Right. Take a chance on those guys. With Greenlaw, he kind of isn't either. Um, so he was, you know, uh, like a 16th percentile athlete by Spark. So even if you want to say that he's a little faster than his timed, he's still like a, a very clearly below average athlete for even that if, position. Even if you were to take his 40 time up into like the high four fives, uh, which is a significant increase off of four seven for an NFL player. Right. That still doesn't take his athleticism score much higher than, than where he's at right now. Right. It, it's, I think, yeah. And even if you want to say he's a little bit better than what he tested at, he tested at so poorly that that's still not going to be that 
great. Um, and then from a production standpoint, he was actually, uh, you know, kind of one of the worst linebackers in this class at Arkansas. So when you look at the the guys that were either drafted or uh, as a part of our top 250 big board at PFF, um, that group of linebackers, he was the second lowest graded when you look at his three-year grade. And, and doing that again at a uh, top conference in college football, like, doesn't leave you feeling super great about where he was at on the field. You would have liked to see, you know, and we see all the time linebackers, especially come from schools that otherwise aren't that great, but they, they can stand out, right? It's, it's easy for a linebacker to be able to stand out. Even if the guys around them aren't that great, he didn't really do that. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, it's like, whatever, if their evaluation let him there, they want to take a chance on that guy. I think it's just, it's hard to find something based on what we know at this moment to feel uh, super positive about him. So you mentioned having a player that does one thing really, really well. And I think when you get into the later round picks, this is where the Niners actually really started getting some value out of their picks. And the back end, if the top of their draft was was really good and then the middle kind of had this, well, I'm not sure how I feel about them or I just think it was a poor decision overall. Their final three picks were, I think, really good. You look at Caden Smith, tight end at a Stanford, sixth round overall, 176th. He's the guy who does one thing really, really well. Run this guy on a seam route and throw it up to him, and he's probably going to catch it. Um, and he's, he's really, really good at it. I mean, despite the fact that he's not, again, super athletic, he was not fast. He was not the, the George Kittle high spark tight end. He was still first in the class on deep catch rate. He was third in deep passing yards. Uh, and he was first in slot receptions and second in slot yards. So this is someone who's gunning right for Selleck, uh, for Selleck time. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, Garrett Selleck is a backup tight end. He fills his role, and you're, the team probably does need an upgrade for that second tight end slot. And they drafted someone who's got a very, very specific set of skills, and that's exactly the type of player you want to target late in the draft. And I think it was, you know, all things considered, a really good pick. Right. I think um, definitely some value here. I think, you know, you it wouldn't have been a surprise to see him go a round or two earlier. Um, I, I think, yeah, like not the greatest athlete, doesn't have uh, necessarily great speed, um, but there's enough there. I think, you know, he gets in and out of cuts all right for his size. I think he's definitely a better receiver. I mean, you know, he does have obviously substantial blocking experience playing at Stanford and the offense that they run, but he spent... Uh, you know, roughly equal time in line and out either in the slot or out wide as a as a receiver. So um, has been able to move around a little bit in that offense and do some different things. Um, I think, yeah, absolutely his kind of best skill. And this was something that uh, Lynch and Shanahan brought up when they were talking about in the presser, something that I really agreed with where, yeah, his best asset is really kind of his catch radius. Um, he's not going to uh, necessarily like leap out of the building for, you know, over the top of guys necessarily, but he's a big target. And if you get it in his area, like he's really good he's at coming come up with it. it. Um, he had more contested targets than anybody, any other tight end in this class um, and came down with a really high percentage of those. So over 50% uh, of his contested targets he caught. So that's kind of his thing. He's not going to run away from you. I think if you look at two games, you can really kind of see, both sides of it. Uh, the Oregon game is kind of the the high end of things. He, he really made a lot of great plays, contested balls up the seam um, in kind of that intermediate to, you know, right around 20-yard range. Uh, and then the game against Notre Dame, you see the lack of athleticism a little bit. He really struggled to separate in that game um, and just wasn't wasn't a good look for him overall. Only caught like one of six targets, I believe, in that game and, and just wasn't great overall. So I think he's going to have... Uh, some struggles if he runs into situations where he's matched up with, 
you know, linebackers or really probably more of the safeties that are, that are much better athletes than him. He's going to really struggle to kind of separate from those guys. And so it's going to be kind of on Jimmy to be able to trust, even though he's not gaining separation to still give him a chance to, to kind of make a play on the ball. Um, but I think there's a, a really good, I think he has a really good chance of taking that number two tight end spot. I think he's likely a better receiver than any of the other non Kittle tight ends at this point. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's definitely a chance that he can come in and, and find a role in this offense. And I mean, that second tight end spot has been a revolving door for Shanahan and Lynch now since they've been here. I mean, you look at, you know, they're, they're going after players like Cole Wick and Ross Dwelly and Logan Paulson. And, and you know, Selleck's been the kind of the person who's, who's been there, but I think they are very much looking to to upgrade that role, and I think this might be the guy to do it eventually as a role player and as that second tight end. Not someone who's going to have a ton of snaps, but someone who can fit a very, very specific role and can give the team some quality snaps as Selleck gets into the, the twilight of his career. But then you get to probably one of the you know more value picks where you're actually getting some solid athleticism, good production, but someone with some injury concerns, and that's Tim Harris, cornerback from Virginia, whom the Niners drafted sixth uh, in the sixth round, 198th overall. And when you're talking about value, this is this is the poster child for value late in the draft. If you're going to gamble on someone, you gamble on someone who is a plus athlete who fits your profile, who had great ath- uh, who had some great production, but has that injury asterisk next next to his name. Right. He just, I mean, he spent six years at Virginia. Yeah, uh, he didn't. He got like a special exemption to get a, an additional year of eligibility. So I think that yeah, was weird. Yeah, he he had like six or seven years in college. I mean, basically, the only dude older than him on the roster might be our punter. <laughs> um, but and Mike, I, there, and Mike a, McGlinchey. And my, oh, yeah, I mean, of course, duh, just goes without saying. Uh, it's actually in Mike McGlinchey's contract that he's legally older than the oldest person on the roster. <laughs> Uh, so with Harris, I mean, yeah, you look at, uh, again, I'll checks a lot of the boxes as far as late round prospects go and things that you like to see, uh, is a fantastic athlete. One of the best athletes at the corner position in his draft class, 92nd percentile. So again, better than 92% of the, the cornerbacks in the NFL there, um, had really good change of direction, um, and, and kind of, uh, jump numbers. So it was explosiveness, uh, there fit really well with his size because he does have, that kind of prototypical size that they really do prefer um, to have in, in this defense. So he's 6'2", 200, has some solid length. Uh, and so all of those fit kind of what we know that they like to see at cornerback. And then the production has been solid. You know, it was, again, for a lot of his career, it was iffy, but this last year was the season he was able to spend the most time on the field uh, and and did really well. Had a coverage grade that was approaching 90 Um even his three-year coverage grade was kind of landed in the mid-80s there. So really solid production, you know, stuff that you don't typically see that combination of athleticism and production for a sixth-round pick. Uh, he's definitely got some things to clean up technique-wise. I mean, there were there were some some spots where uh, it looked kind of ugly, uh, and there's, there's some things that he needs to work on, but uh, absolutely is a player worth taking a chance on that late in the draft. Yeah, and I think that when you look at the, the Niners prefer players, actually, no, Kelly Willispoon wasn't necessarily a willing tackler, but if the Niners are going to have a profile, they would want someone who's going to be able to be a willing tackler. And when you look at some of what Tim Harris does, he's absolutely able to mix it up and, and get in there. So if you don't like corners that are averse to contact and you didn't like the greedy Williams pick because you thought, oh, he's averse to contact, I don't want to draft someone like that. Well, Tim Harris doesn't have that blight. He's able to get in there and mix it up. And I mean, you would hope so with as big as this dude is. I mean, he's 6200 at the corner position. Um, so that's probably when, when we're talking about value, when you're talking about someone who 
could have gone much earlier in the draft. Um, this is probably their value pick. And, and I'm excited to see what, uh, what his career blossoms into if it does, um, because that's, you know, these are the kinds of picks, especially late that you want to make. Definitely. I, I mean, I think this was a guy that, you know, so, uh, Renner and, and Steve are the guys that do that put together our big board at PFF. I mean, they had him as, uh, the 117th, uh, overall player there. So again, a guy that could have gone, uh, as early as the fourth round, probably maybe even a little bit earlier than that. If you had a team that really kind of fell in love with it, as far as what he did show when he was on the field there. And obviously I think injury concerns is probably the, the main thing that really yeah. pushed him down quite a bit, but uh, again, you want to take some chances on guys that at least have shown you something that, that give you a reason to think they might be able to come in and find a, a roster spot for you. And I think he absolutely has the ability to do that. So there were a couple of comments the team made when they were talking about their draft picks. And I wanted to ask you a few questions about that. But before we get into that, just a quick message from our sponsors. Uh, I'm curious what you thought about the comments that Lynch made um, when he was asked about drafting a corner and he basically had a formulation of the, you don't come in and take uh, Cassius Marsh's job quote, but he was talking specifically about corners. And he said, you know, when, when we're looking at the corner position, you really have to think to yourself, are they going to come in and beat Richard Sherman? Are they going to come in and beat Akella Witherspoon and Tavares Moore and, and all these players that have some question marks over their head. You know, that the only player that really doesn't is Richard Sherman, but he's very clearly on the decline of his very great and what will probably assuredly be a Hall of Fame career. Um, but that's that self-evaluation of the corner position is what really took the team away from drafting or adding to that area, it seems like. And and I think that's that was interesting to hear their evaluation in the room. And it was interesting to hear what seemed like the aversion to adding talent for a team that supposedly values competition at every level. Right. It was, and it was very strange because he also had a comment that was in there that said, you can't have enough good cornerbacks, which, exactly. which really seemed to run against this. Um, I mean, I think the, the, that line of thinking isn't that bad. I mean, the way Shanahan explained it, right. I think makes a lot of sense, which is essentially, okay, you're sitting there in the third round, right? And you have a receiver and a cornerback that you feel roughly equally with with your evaluation. And then you have to kind of look at the roster, right? Okay, does is it more likely that we can bring this receiver in and he can come in and, and help us out more and be better than the guys we have in the roster? Or is this corner do it, right? I think that line of thinking is is very good and sound. Um, the The part where it breaks down is thinking that you're set with the group of cornerbacks that they have, right? I think... That's the concerning part. And um, as we've talked about many times with the cornerbacks that they have on the roster, there is reason to be excited about some of these guys. And, and there are definitely scenarios uh, that play out that these guys, multiple of these guys end up being good players. Yeah. You right? look at the probability curve of the outcome of what happens with the corner position, and there's a world in which all of the people take a step forward or they get back to their rookie form. In the case of Adrian Colbert, Jimmy Ward stays healthy and Richard Sherman takes, you know, another step because he's fully healthy this year. Akella Witherspoon becomes the corner that we thought he would be. And all of a sudden you have a pretty fearsome, you know, kind of, uh, of cornerbacks or, or secondary, but that is kind of on the outlier of the probability curve. Right. And, and the right, other, the, the, the other outlier is that they all suck. And the truth <laughs> is going to be somewhere in the middle of that bell curve when you're thinking of the probability of outcomes. And so the more, the, the more likely scenario is that some of them end up okay, some of them end up crappy. But if half of those dudes end up crappy, you still overall have a pretty poor secondary that needs some help. Exactly. Like the, the thing that we know kind of above all else is when you have a lot of question marks, not all of them are going to be answered positively, right? We've seen this time and time again where 
the team has kind of relied heavily on younger players and the development of those young players, and that's put them in a bad spot, right? If only A, B, C, D, E all work out and they, these guys all progress the way that we hope, then we'll be fine. And like, yeah, sure, if that, that happened, you probably would be fine. But you can't really plan around that way. You know, you have well, to... I think you have to plan for the opposite, right? You yeah, hope for that to happen. Exactly. But you plan for the opposite. What, what we would like to see is that you recognize that, okay... Our pass defense is one of the most important things that we can do as a team in, in team building, and we want to make sure all aspects of that are good. And we've done partial, you know, part of that is we've loaded up on pass rush, and that's great. Um, that fantastic. defensive line is going to be super fun. I can't wait. Absolutely. So you, you do that, and then, but also bring in, don't be afraid to bring in guys. In the secondary, right? You want to make the pass coverage as good as... It doesn't have to be a one or the other. I think a lot of times in this this argument of like, okay, which is more important, it, it gets lost that like they're both important. They both matter. Um, and, and so you don't want to just like put all of your eggs in one of the baskets. You want to be able to have kind of complementary pieces there. And, and so you want to have enough options at cornerback that... If, if guys go down with injury, you have options to go to, right? Or that you just give your, your like most importantly, you give yourself more chances to succeed. And, and yeah. uh, if you, you have six of these guys that you think can all come in and compete, it's better than, you know, the, it's more likely that you're going to have two or three of them actually hit and be really good than if you only have four. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think you look at the, the strategy of someone like Dorsey who added Greedy Williams in the secondary, already has Denzel Ward, but why the hell not add Greedy, right? And he spent... You know, a, a pretty high draft pick in order to go get him. He wasn't afraid that that was going to impact that that defensive secondary, even though he's already got a couple of really good players there. And you look at was it Roseman who said that you know we don't want to be so arrogant to think that all that it's all going to work out or, or that we're always going to be right. And so yes. you want many yeah. more chances to hit. And I think that's that's exactly the philosophy. Um, and so it, it was definitely curious, but they, they value the front seven. That's where they're adding all of their resources. I think it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, did we learn anything else? about the team and their decision-making process because to me these moments and the draft where you get to see their decisions exposed are really interesting moments to learn a bit about what they like what they prefer and their overall process for adding talent to the roster so did we learn anything about this team now in year three of seeing them move through this draft I don't know that we learned a whole lot new, but I think we had some things reinforced that w- that we kind of already suspected, right? I think one of the things that we had become worried about was effectively them zeroing in on certain players and deciding that they're going to get that player no matter the cost, right? These end up largely being their worst decisions, right? It's the the juice contract. It's the Malcolm William, uh, Malcolm Smith signing. It's uh, deciding that you can't go to sleep at night if you don't get C.J. Beathard and Joe Williams on your roster. Uh, it's it's those type of decisions that have I can't really go to been, sleep at night until I see uh, his picture, C.J. Beathard. I look that, at that photograph. Look look at that photograph. Don't ever stop looking at that photograph. Uh, right. So one, I, I, one day that will get old. Today is not that. Today day. is not that day. Uh, <laughs> And so I think, you know, we've um, we've seen them kind of every offseason identify certain players and just decide this is the guy, right? There's there's no other player that can possibly do what this player does for us. We have to have him, and they pay way above what the market value is to get that player. 
and largely they have been wrong on those players. They have not. It's, it'd be one thing if they were hitting on all of those guys yeah. and those were they were coming in and making a big difference. Again, those have largely been their worst decisions so far through three years. And so I think uh, it's concerning. You you want to be able to understand that yes, we may like this guy better. Um, but there's you have to understand which players are truly special and which ones, yeah, we might like more than others, but we can find similar skills elsewhere without having to pay that extra premium, right? You want to put the the big resources, go over the top for the guys who really truly are special, not the fullback that you think is the best fullback available. Yeah, I, I think that I probably didn't learn anything new about the team, but uh, I, I think that absolutely things got reinforced they they definitely i think some of the the thing that i have to separate myself from is that i really want them to approach it a certain way but i think obviously lynch and shanahan approach it a very different way so my takeaway is mostly about how i'm going to try to approach evaluating what the hell they're doing and putting it try to put it through their lens even though in the back of my head i'm going to be like eh, you should probably have a cornerback um but okay i totally get that you're throwing resources into your front seven and you're going to have like 97 linebackers okay cool let's see how that works out um, yeah, and, it's and it's important to understand that that element of it, right? You want to look at it through their lens and see if, okay, is, is the way that they're approaching this, does there seem to be a coherent plan in place? Like, do these things make sense when you're looking at it through that lens? And, and you know, sometimes that's true. I think a lot of their offensive moves, right? The, the, I think that's true. And that makes sense considering Kyle Shanahan. I think the problem has been on defense. It's really, you know, obviously we, and we'll continue to, to make fun of the juice contract forever <laughs> until, uh, probably until well beyond when he leaves this team. Um, cause it was, it was so bad, but I think largely the, the problems have been defensively, right? That's when, uh, they have really been done a poor job of kind of identifying those players. They've gone out of their way to get some of them. And it just, generally has not worked out for them. You know, when I think about the plan on offense specifically, I think about the 49ers trying to get bigger and trying to get bully-ish on offense. And I, I think that is really interesting because I, I don't know how Jalen Hurd's going to turn out, but he, they definitely coveted him for his size and his athleticism. And I, while I don't, I think Shanahan is right. They're going to play him at wide receiver. I do think that trotting out there with two wide receivers and then moving him into, you know, kind of a bigger formation where maybe he can be a back or something like that could, you know, we know that running out of, or passing out of running formations can be very, very valuable. Um, and someone like Debo Samuel, who is, you know, also plays very, very aggressively and their tight end, who's also kind of a, a big type of receiver. It, it just seems like, and they want to use Goodwin more as, as a gadget guy. Um, and more of in that Taylor Gabriel role. I'm not saying that they're going to come out here and trot out Jim Harbaugh's offense, um, but I'm curious what kinds of things Shanahan has in his mind that he wants to deploy these tools with. The interesting thing to me is, okay, so like the the hurt thing, this I think is a really good comparison. Um, you talk about players that can not only line up wide and, and run routes and be a receiver out there, be a legitimate receiving threat, but also kind of be able to motion in the backfield and, and be a running threat or, or the opposite, right? Maybe they're starting in the backfield because they they're viewing them as running back and they can go out out wide. Like is Jalen Hurd going to be able to do that at a higher level than Jarrett McKinnon? I think it's, it's almost 100% certain that he's a better runner or even Tevin right? Coleman. You think of Tevin um, Coleman as a receiver, Tevin right? Coleman, one, of, one of my favorite receiving routes that, that Tevin Coleman runs is that corner route from the backfield. And he runs it very well. He, and he is faster than Jalen Hurd when he runs that route. And we've seen McKinnon like legitimately go out wide and, and run receiver style routes, right? It's not just being good, uh, good as a receiver for a running back, right? He's done like legitimate receiver 
eat things out there. And and so it, it's like on offense, you do run into a situation where you can only have so many of these guys on the field, right? You can only get so many of them the ball. And when you start to overlap skill sets too much, I think, um, which is what the herd thing, like the, the herd thing. Yes. He may have some versatility, but does he do any one of those things better than other players that are already on the roster? Like, I don't, I don't know. I like right now, I think the answer is no. Um, and so it's just they have versatile piece. I think looking for that stuff, finding guys who can be threats and don't really give away those run pass tendencies is clearly an important part of what Shanahan wants offensively. And I think that's that's great, right? Sure, go for that. That that's a valuable thing. That makes sense. Uh, we see New England have a lot of success doing similar stuff. Like you can be very successful with that approach. That's fine. Uh, it's just like okay using those picks on things where we can already get that accomplished with what's there. Is that the best use of that resource? I think that's the the concern. Um, I think my last kind of thought too, is there are, there are, I think one, you want to put into context that we're not saying that this team is like the giants, right? When we take issue with some of their, Oh, Gettleman is uniquely, uniquely terrible at his job currently. Yes. Uh, and so when we take issue with kind of some of their approach, I think it's important to point out, like, we're not trying to say this is like the worst run organization in football currently, right? Like nothing really close to that. Quite the opposite. Um, We actually kind of like the draft overall, right? Understanding that you, you're not going to hit on every pick. Every team makes mistakes and curious decisions, and some of them work out, some of them don't. Um, but I think top to bottom, they ha- at least initially, because we d- we have no idea how these players are going to pan out. But initially, they're pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, but the the other thing is like they kind of they've continued to make some of these these mistakes, and um, I think it's by all accounts like something we should expect them to continue to do to kind of zero in on some of these players, and they're probably going to continue to miss on some of them. Hopefully, they will hit on more of them going forward, but. Uh, the, the thing is, is if Jimmy is the player that we think and hope he is, it's probably not going to matter. And and so I think that's a tough spot to be when you're trying to evaluate things because, you know, what, how much is this stuff ultimately going to affect the win loss? I think there is a a real chance that if Jimmy isn't a, a bonafide, consistent top five quarterback, these are the the little differences that are going to mean the difference between being a playoff team and being an, a legitimate Super Bowl contender, right? It's finding those those uh, advantages on the margins and, and really getting the most out of your 53-man roster and putting those resources in the right place. That's going to be the thing. But they're not going to be a bad team if Jimmy is healthy and a good quarterback. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, and I think when you look at their plan, their plan now is pretty obvious. They're going to throw... Uh, high level of, or really your prize value resources at the front seven on defense. They lucked another quarterback, which is great. And they're looking for bigger, more versatile pieces on offense that they can use either in specific roles or in roles that don't tip pass run tendencies. Um, and they feel like, you know, you can't put a ton of resources everywhere. So the place they're going to skimp is coverage. And they're going to either try to get athletes that perform or athletes that the system can cover up. Um, and, and that's what they're going to roll out with. And they feel like the front seven is going to be able to mask that. Um, and that's how they're building the team. They're building it really kind of from the, the inside out inside on offense with center and tackles inside on defense with a bevy of first round picks and, and your linebackers, and then kind of going out from there. You really, uh, I think, I, I think the defense, it's very clear that it's built in Lynch's image, right? He is, he is very directly and he referred to it in the press conference but he is referring back to his playing days. And you look at the best teams that he was on. It was the Tampa Bay teams. Warren Sapp. And, and where Derek were Brooks they best? And, yeah. 
upfront, right? And and so that's the way that I think he very much believes is how you build winning defense is having a very very strong defensive line that can get home with four and and be able to disrupt the quarterback. And um, you know, I think that is is obviously a very good thing. I think offenses aren't what they were when those Tampa Bay teams were really good, and I think there there does need to be some adjustments, and hopefully they will kind of see that they can't just ignore coverage. But, um, yeah, it, it's, I think, very clearly built in in his image what he wants that defense to look like. So, overall, definitely a positive draft for the Niners. They got some great value even late, especially with that Tim Harris pick. And their first couple of picks, I think, are going to be great prospects. You know, a couple of missteps in the middle rounds, but, you know, nobody's perfect. Uh, and now we get to make wish puns. Uh, I can say that name. Like, wish. I wish they would have taken another player with that pick. Uh, something along those wish. lines. I was waiting to see how long it would take for you to pull that uh, one yeah. uh, Mitch Wishnowski. Um, one of my favorite tweets was, for a second I thought we drafted Mike Wazowski. <laughs> oh, that was pretty good. Uh, yeah, but all right. I, yeah. uh, let's talk some Game of Thrones because... Game of Thrones was a great episode, and we've got some time here on the back end of the episode. If you haven't seen the Battle of Winterfell, just stop right now. Thank you for tuning in. Follow me on Twitter at Better Rivals. David, where can they follow you? <laughs> uh, it's going to be at PFF underscore David. And as always, go Niners. Cool. Game of Thrones. Battle of Winterfell. Give me your thoughts. Go. Uh, I think as an episode, like just kind of self-contained, it was fantastic. Was it right? a top five episode or a top four episode? <laughs> Loaded question. Um, I mean, it was. I'd have to think about it a little bit more. It was. It was up there. I th- I'm fine putting it about up there. About as loaded as a horde of Dothraki running into the night. Uh, just disappearing, man. That was um, honestly that scene with the Dothraki and all of their lights, like all their swords, and they just run out. I'm like, okay, first of all, stupid move, running your cavalry right into an unseen army of the dead. But whatever, we got to get rid of them somehow. Uh, John, John, I just want to throw this out there. John is a uh, is a battle commander is the guy who uh, is like the, the head coach who's 5-0 and in close games but has like a Pythagorean win percentage of 250. <laughs> like he should be 1-4 maybe at best in these scenarios, but it's all worked out and he's 5-0, and you know? Uh, it, it's just like he does some dumb shit sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, but then the, the, the moment that the lights started extinguishing, I was like, oh, man. Like that, that was when I knew I was totally in at that moment. I mean, it starts out with one shot also, for a while. where the fuck is Ghost? Don't give me Ghost like running out there and then Bro, just disappearing for the rest of the episode. Did you see how... It's the last four episodes. I don't care CGI, what your CGI budget is. They spent Get a ghost the CGI budget on jaw-dropping dragons. Literally jaw-dropping dragons oh, with yeah. blue fire coming out of his neck. We ain't Holy got shit. no time for Ghost. Dude, Ghost... Whatever. I don't even hear Ghost hate. Um, <laughs> ghost is... is fucking legit all right he is uh, he shouldn't bad. be john there john shouldn't be anywhere without ghosts that's how that shit works yeah put um, him on a dragon it's cool but so you get to the the battle and and the battle tactically was an absolute mess um they and this isn't in, in a bad thing about the episode i still very much enjoyed the episode but whoa man uh putting your siege weapons in front of uh, the walls and your army um Again. yeah just... putting creating natural choke points with the uh, and I don't even know what they're called, but the spikes that they had to prevent the right. uh, all the White Walkers from getting through the walls. All you did was create choke points for your for your people to walk through. It's like, did you not um, learn anything from the Battle of Thermopylae? Three hundred. Come um, on. Yeah. Again, John. N- questionable decisions as a battle commander. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, everything in the episode was was great, right? Uh, the the Arya moment was great. 
Uh, I think I, it's just um, I'm a little frustrated with the idea that the Night King that was it. The big, yeah. Like, so this is the 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 threat that's been set up from the first scene of the the first episode, the the prologue of the first book. This is the threat, and you're gonna tell me all ends with him coming down from the wall. Okay, cool. We blow through an abandoned wall, whatever. We go down to Last Hearth, mop up whatever remains there as they're trying to get the fuck out, and then we're gonna blow a twenty eight three lead at Winterfell. <laughs> uh, like that's. That's all. That's all we're getting from the the threat that threatens to extinguish humanity the from the night. face of the fucking earth. He's going to blow a 28-3 lead in his first real game action here. Like, come on. And, like, setting up Cersei to be, like, the final big bad is just bullshit. Cersei should have been fucking dead a long time ago. I I don't dislike the idea of Cersei as the head boss lady. I think at least for me, the palace intrigue and what's been happening with Cersei and the Lannisters and the, even back to the Baratheons, that, that part's always been more interesting to me because the Night King as a villain was so poorly developed. Right. That's that's part of it is they just the, the whole thing with the Night King and setting yeah. that story up, they just didn't do a great job. This is why Bran as the Night King was such a popular theory because I think fans everywhere were like there has to be more to this. There has to be more to him and this existential threat. And so getting rid of him I think is the move you have to make because unless you're going to spend another, you know, 20 30 minutes telling us more about him and his backstory which they should have and could have in done in the first in two episodes even if you're going to yeah, I mean they could have done it way earlier obviously, yeah. but if you're going to if you're going to like push it last minute, you had plenty of time in these first two episodes when you're basically just chilling at Winterfell getting yeah. ready to die. My my favorite moment though was the moment between Tyrion and Sansa when they're in the crypts. And they're hiding behind one of the the big coffins and they just kind of like look at each other and hold each other's hands. And just I felt like, like that moment was double suicide. Oh, yeah. No, I, I thought that they were going to go out in a blaze of glory, man. And and <laughs> it was everything I loved about that show, because I think from a visual tori- a storytelling perspective, it they, they said and communicated everything with images. They didn't really have to say anything. And you felt immediately like, oh, man, she just told him that he was the best of them and you think of her and you know and getting raped and going through the, the hard shit that she's had to go through and Tyrion going through that and 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 always feeling like he was never good enough and 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 they were going to go out guns blazing and that moment just I welled up a little bit cuz I was like oh, yeah. man and I thought they were great. toast I thought they were absolute toast um and I'm Yeah like, again the 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 Crips thing was the payoff was not as good there they I, no. they they yeah, whatever. Are, are you are you in the I wanted more people to die camp? Like I one hundred percent more people should have died. Again, this oh, is more the people should have died. Threat. But but are you disappointed that a lot of the main characters survived? Like you know Jamie and uh, Brienne and Sex God bit. Pod. Like um, they're all still there. Right. I, um, I think that's uh, just even Sam unreasonable for what Sam we learned literally about the story. got in a giant beanbag chair of dead bodies and know, just, just started stabbing left and right. I'm just like ah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, Sam should have been eaten up at like three or four different points, probably. Um, yeah, I, I think getting that many major characters through this battle is like a little, a little iffy. Um, I, I think so, but I don't, I don't really 
care all that much. I think people were expecting there to be a lot of deaths because they were expect because they were raised and weaned on on everything that Game of Thrones was, and it was very subversive in that we're going to kill all your main characters, and so everyone saw this as a point to kind of cull the herd and get the kind of the superfluous characters out and really narrow it in for the last three episodes, but. Yeah. When and this was something they mentioned on on the Watch podcast from the Ringer. They said when was the last time that a major character died unexpectedly, um, and it was really uh, season four with the Viper. Yeah, and and that was when they were still very much humming based on the book stories. And, and I think it's a great point that that they raise up where it's like, yeah, that was the last time, and I think we've all been riding off that high for a long time. But it's been pretty traditional television for the last couple of seasons. Oh both yeah, good I mean, and bad. from once they ran out of book, they had you know basically a stretch there where they did a bunch of book payoff stuff, things that they kind of knew were, were likely coming. And then since then, yeah, it's been, you know, I think there's been some questionable things. I think, again, they shortened it a lot. Um, but yeah, I think the, just the idea that like Cersei doesn't have to uh, get any shit from like, like she should have yeah. been, had to see that fucking army of the dead come to King's Landing and like wreck shop there. I don't know how, because and... I originally thought that they were going to re- like lose this battle and eventually win whatever war, but lose this individual battle and retreat somehow yes, to, to King's Landing yep. or the Iron Islands or something like that. Given the way that battle played out, I have no idea how they would have retreated. Like, and I mean, I think you said it, right? Get everyone on the dragons, which. Yeah, I mean, that was basically, I, I think, the only way they could have done it, which was essentially like, okay, we're going to get the main whatever main characters we've got left yeah. throw them on the back of the two dragons and just get out and and bail and maybe some escape through kind of some secret passages in in the crypts and and like they maybe pop up later on or something like that but yeah it was going to be like not a lot of people make it out of this they got to go back to king's landing like i wonder like cuz we we have the the scene from the throne room in king's landing that looks like uh, what combination ash snow not really not really sure like are we gonna get that like what how that how's that gonna happen huh. like um i thought that would be something that came nuclear from, nuclear war yeah, cersei the, develops a nuclear bomb sure i mean also can't rule it out with only three episodes left you know spent a lot of time setting that one up that that's um, gonna be the end it's just gonna cut to black just like the sopranos <laughs> oh my god i lose my mind um but yeah again episode was great i i initially like had a little bit of issue with Arya being the one to do yeah, it. But so, the more I thought through it, I was like, all right, th- this was at least something that was set up much earlier on. It wasn't kind of, you know, they they had known that this was going to be how they wanted to do it. And so I can appreciate that a little bit. I'm totally there was set up that. and there was payoff. And she, yeah, I mean, obviously. She's been training to be an assassin for a while. And I yeah. think she, when you think of how they were fighting, you had, I mean, basically most everyone was just hacking and slashing. She was actually fighting in a very visually interesting way. I mean, we saw her with a, a staff. We saw her with a spear. We saw her with a dagger. We saw her with arrows. We saw her with basically any weapon, a, a blade that she puts in some poor person's oh, chin. Oh, man. Oh, man. That yeah, was that, that oh. was gross. And then oh. you get, like, the, the, the blood? blood vomit stuff coming off. Oh. Oh, yeah, great. no. I mean, that was, I mean, she was awesome i i yeah, have no totally. problem whatsoever and i have no problem with what the like oh where'd she come from it's like don't care she can literally wear other people's faces yeah i like, think uh we're fine i think yeah it makes it makes sense that if it you know it kind of had to be something that was sneaky she was clearly like the sneaky one yeah. right that that was gonna potentially do something like that um yeah i didn't think it like uh, I never really thought that it was going to be like John or something like that. Yeah, right? would have like, been that would have been. I actually would have been a little disappointed had it been John because yeah. it would have been like, 
okay, here we go. John fucking does everything, right? Like, it's, yeah, it, it was a little trite. Like, what? Bran isn't doing shit. I know. Like, yeah. I again. Um, only Bran, thing I don't know. Only thing I can think of. Only thing I can think of, and, and this is kind of my my final thought on it is, I the the only thing that will help salvage him as a character is if he does a little work next episode, and if he was warging and doing something more when he was just kicking it under the tree. Yeah, he was just like chilling it. Like I'm gonna come Taking up with these crows. Uh, I also like one thing that I thought we were gonna get payoff on that I'm really surprised that we didn't. This was something that uh, Jason Concepcion from The Ringer brought up, which was basically you had that scene from the previous episode where Tyrion goes up to Bran kind of after they break from the 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 kind of the battle plan um, meeting that they were having there, and and everybody else leaves, and Tyrion stays there, and and basically is like, tell me your journey, like tell me what happened. You got to think to set that scene up, that has to have a purpose, right? That had to yeah. have a payoff. You can't like you spent the time just from a pure production standpoint. You spent the time to get everybody there to shoot that scene to have that moment happen. And you're just going to leave it? And we just assume they had a nice chat for like an hour or two and we never hear from that again? Like, that seems like a strange decision. Like, you, I thought that we were going to get something there that, like, he told, like, he's been going back. He, maybe he went back and saw how the long night ended the first time and he gave Tyrion some information that was going to help or, you know, something that was going to yeah. help them in their cause that day. And then it was just like, nah, doesn't matter. All right, favorite death? Uh like favorite in what way whatever whatever you're feeling i mean jorah went out how jorah should have went out oh yeah for sure i think that's that was a good one for sure um um i'm glad that theon if he's finally done i'm theon, so over uh, i'm so yeah. over that story um, he died valiantly he was thanked before he self-sacrificed yeah uh i mean he it was also yeah such a such a dumb like i'm just gonna plunge in here like knowing that you're gonna die i mean he obviously knew he was gonna die regardless of how he did it It was just hilarious seeing him i asked myself that question i was like if i i thought in that moment i was like all right i'm i'm about to die i know this yeah what like how do i choose to go like do i self-immolate at this point do i just set myself on fire and be like later (laughs) motherfuckers i'm out like, or, or do I rush in just like Theon? You know, I, I, I don't know what I, I'm glad I never have to think about that more than the 30 seconds that it flashed in, uh, yes. in my mind in that episode. Correct. Um, but all right. So we've got three episodes left, all hour and a half long episodes. Um, and, and it'll be interesting. I don't know that we'll do, you know, 15 minutes at the end of every show when it comes no, to Game of Thrones. It was but fun to talk this about was, I, this was, I think overall, it was one of the best episodes of the entire series. I think as a movie, which is what it was. Yeah. It was a very, very good movie, and I thought that the directors did a good job, even if they probably need a new colorist um, to lighten up the shots a little bit. Um, I don't know. I'm fine with that. Uh, John, last parting John thought. Uh, you're going to yell at a dragon, man. You're going <laughs> to sit there yes. and fucking just yell at that dragon. Yes. Again, John. John, five, <laughs> five and oh. Five and zero, oh, but that Pythagorean win percentage is not great. Uh, John not Snow, good. the Pythagorean king. That's oh, yeah, I love it. Oh man. Well, there it is. Uh, thanks again for tuning in, and if you've gotten this far, thanks again for staying all the way to the end, as loyal listeners often do. So, thanks again, and as always, go Niners. <laughs>